everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 248 for November 29th, 2021. The year is almost over, folks. We got one month to go. Crazy how time has flown. For those of you who celebrate uh, in the U.S., most likely, I hope you had a fun and happy Thanksgiving. And of course, now it's Black Friday and Small Business Saturday, I think, and Cyber Monday and, you know, shopping season, basically. And again, without trying to be too consumerist, you know, if you are buying gifts, then you better get on it because this, this year is going to be crazy with COVID. And remember, I do have my best and worst gift guide. You can find that on the uh, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com with lots of advice, largely for what not to get, but also with some very specific ideas of things you might want to get. Now, one of the things you might want to get is my book. It makes a great stocking stuffer, especially at the current price. You only got a couple days left to nab this. I think it's I think it ends tomorrow night, uh, Tuesday night, November thirtieth. I think is when it's done. But you can pick it up for nine ninety nine for the uh, the physical book or six ninety nine for the ebook. And what denomination you ask? Well, actually, it's it's the same price regardless of denomination, at least in terms of U.S. dollars, British pounds, or euro. You can find that on Springer.com. Actually, if you just go to link.springer.com, I'm not sure. Springer Link is the name of their store, I guess. I don't know. They own A-Press, my publisher. And that is where the sale is. So if you go to link.springer.com and search on my book, you'll find it there. Uh, Of course, there's a link in the show notes. and, And if you follow me on Twitter, it's my profile top post. And there's a link there as well. All right, well, we've got a lot of news uh, to cover today. So I'm going to talk about a Zelle fraud scam uh, scheme, how it works and how you fight back. Also, uh, kind of on a similar vein, uh, some iPhone thieves are figuring out a clever way using a kind of a similar tactic to uh, turn off the Find My on your lost device, which would allow them to erase it and sell it. Apple is suing the NSO Group, the Israeli hacking company, for lack of a better term for attacking their iPhones with the Pegasus spyware. And Apple's also said they're going to start alerting people that they think may have been hacked, which is interesting development. I got an interesting report saying that the bad guys basically, when they're trying to just brute force guess passwords, like if they don't already know it, if you didn't choose a really crappy one and they, and they have to just start guessing, that they kind of give up after 10 characters. I'll t- so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. GoDaddy, the uh, domain name registrar, admitted to a password breach, a pretty major password breach, in a really dumb way. And if you've got a WordPress site uh, through GoDaddy, you definitely want to listen to this. There's a new Windows zero-day bug that lets you get admin privileges. The really weird part about this story, though, is how it was kind of released, which I'm not really happy about. There's a new mysterious malware that seems to be kind of lurking out there. It hasn't really done anything yet, but it could threaten millions of routers and modems and NAS devices out there, other IoT devices. And Microsoft is doing some really shady stuff again with their Edge browser and just data collection in general. This is really crappy. And I'm really surprised at this point that Microsoft is still trying to pull stuff like this. And I honestly hope they get in real trouble for this. But anyway, I'll tell you what's going on with that. And then a little story about how Vizio turns out that they are actually making more money off your data than off the TV that they sold you. And finally, as promised, I believe I mentioned this last week, I am going to tell you about how I was a victim of debit card fraud. And, you know, all the things I've been preaching about debit cards and how to use them or mostly how not to use them. And yet I still got bit following my own advice. So I'll tell you what happened there and, you know, my takeaways from all that. So plenty to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right. First up, this is from Krebs on Security. Uh, And all the articles this week I've had to kind of pare back. I wanted to keep them a little shorter if possible, but some of these are still long. And this one has got a lot of kind of interesting aspects to it. So it's kind of a longer article, but it covers a lot of ground. And I want to uh, read the whole or most of the most of the article. So this is from Krebs on security. And it says one of the more common ways cyber criminals cash out access to bank accounts involves draining the victim's funds via Zelle. That's spelled Z-E-L-L-E, if you've never heard of it. A peer-to-peer payment service used by many financial institutions that allows customers to quickly send cash to friends and family. Naturally, a great deal of phishing schemes that precede these bank account takeovers begin with a spoofed text message from the target's bank warning about a suspicious Zelle transfer. What follows is a deep dive into how this increasingly clever Zelle fraud scam typically works and what victims can do about it. Last week's story, and there's a link to it, which I'm not going to get into here, warned that scammers are blasting out text messages about suspicious bank transfers as a pretext for immediately calling and scamming customers who respond via text. 
And there's an example here. It says, you know, free message dash JP Mortgage Chase Bank alert. Did you attempt a Zelle payment for the amount of $5,000? Reply yes or no, or one to decline fraud alerts. Anyone who responds yes, no, or at all will very soon receive a phone call from a scammer pretending to be from the financial institution's fraud department. The caller's number will be spoofed so that it appears to be coming from the victim's bank. To quote-unquote verify the identity of the customer, the fraudster asks for their online bank username and then tells the customer to read back a passcode sent via text or email. In reality, the fraudster initiates a transaction such as the forgot password feature on the financial institution's site, which is what generates the authentication passcode delivered to the member. Ken Atsuka is a senior risk consultant at CUNA Mutual Group, an insurance company that provides financial services to credit unions. Atsuka said a phone fraudster typically will say something like, quote, before I get into the details, I need to verify that I'm speaking to the right person. What's your username? Unquote. And then he says, in the background, they're using the username with the forgot password feature, and that's going to generate one of these two-factor authentication passcodes. Then the fraudster will say something like, I'm going to send you the password, and you're going to read it back to me over the phone, unquote. The fraudster then uses the code to complete the password reset process and then changes the victim's online banking password. The fraudster then uses Zelle to transfer the victim's funds to others. An important aspect of this scam is that the fraudsters never even need to know or fish the victim's password. By sharing their username and reading back the one-time code sent to them via email, the victim is allowing the fraudster to reset their online banking password. Otsuka said in far too many account takeover cases, the victim has never even heard of Zelle, nor did they realize they could move money that way. Another quote from Otsuka says, The thing is, many credit unions offer it by default as part of online banking. Members don't have to request to use Zelle. It's just there. And with a lot of members targeted in these scams, although they legitimately enrolled in online banking, they'd never used Zelle before, unquote. To combat this scam, Zelle introduced out-of-band authentication with transaction details. This involves sending the member a text containing the details of a Zelle transfer, payee and dollar amount, that is initiated by the member. The member must authorize the transfer by replying to the text. Unfortunately, Itsuka said, the scammers are defeating this layered security control as well. And another quote from him, he says, The fraudsters follow the same tactics except that they may keep the members on the phone after getting their username and two-step authentication passcode to log into the accounts. The fraudster tells the member they will receive a text containing details of a Zelle transfer, and the member must authorize the transaction under the guise that it is for reversing the fraudulent debit card transactions, unquote. In this scenario, the fraudster actually enters a Zelle transfer that triggers the following text to the member, which the member is asked to authorize. And he gives an example. The the example shown says, send $200 Zelle payment to Boris Badenov. Reply yes to send, no to cancel. ABC Credit Union, stop to end all messages, unquote. And another quote from Osuka says, my team has consulted with several credit unions that rolled Zelle out or are planning to introduce Zelle. We found that several credit unions were hit with the scam the same month they rolled it out, unquote. The upshot of all of this is that many financial institutions will claim they're not required to reimburse the customer for financial losses related to these voice phishing schemes, also called vishing sometimes. Bob Sullivan, a veteran journalist who writes about fraud and consumer issues, says in many cases banks are giving customers incorrect or self-serving opinions after the thefts. And this is a quote from Sullivan. He says, quote, Consumers, many who have never ever realized they had a Zelle account, then call their banks expecting they'll be covered by a credit card-like protections only to face disappointment and in some cases financial ruin. Consumers who suffer unauthorized transactions are entitled to Regulation E protection, and banks are required to refund the stolen money. This isn't a controversial opinion, and it was recently affirmed by the CFPB here, and CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. If you are reading this story and fighting with your bank, start by providing that link to the financial institution. If a criminal initiates a Zelle transfer, even if the criminal manipulates a victim into sharing login credentials, that fraud is covered by Regulation E, and banks should restore the stolen funds. If a consumer initiates the transfer under false pretenses, the case for redress is more weak, unquote. Okay, so there is a link in this article. So you'll have to, if you run into the situation, uh, you're going to have to look this one up. If you go to the show notes, you'll find the link to the article, and then in the article, you'll just look for CFPB, and you'll see that there's a link there. But this is, this is kind of social engineering. This is the bad guys figuring out ways to trick you into bypassing a lot of these protections. So 
let's say you've got a killer password on your account, you know, something auto-generated by your password manager, which I recommend that you do. And you've got two-factor authentication set up. All these things are set up. Well, if you forget your password, some of these places still allow you to go and say, well, I forgot my password, so send me a text message or an email to help me reset my password. And oftentimes what it is, is it's some sort of a pin code or a one-time code that you use, or maybe even a temporary password to reset your password. And if that comes via text message and this bad guy uh, the supposed support person on the phone with you tricks you into giving that up behind the scenes. They are changing your password for you to one that they know. And now you do not. And then once they're into your account, uh, they use Zelle. I mean, they could have done probably other ways to do this ACH transfer, you know, whatever. Uh, but Zelle is quick and, and the tra transfers right away. So they want to get that money. So they then use Zelle, which you may not even know that you have on your account to transfer that money to some other account. And then it's gone. And if you even if you happen to have this protection that Zelle is now using to send you uh, another message saying, hey, did you really want to do this? These guys are basically saying, oh, yeah, don't worry that you're going to expect to see this. This is to reverse the bad charges. And when in reality, you're authorizing them to steal your money. Now, I'm not sure what exactly regulation E is, but it's some sort of U.S. regulation that basically protects you, the consumer. Uh, so if you run into this problem and have this issue, you definitely want to be looking up regulation E when you talk to your bank if they are giving you a hard time about refunding that money. All right, now next up is an iPhone story that actually is sadly similar. It's another kind of a social engineering sort of hack. Uh, and this is for people who have their phones stolen and have turned on the Find My feature, which lets them kind of wipe their phone remotely and you know make it kind of useless to the thief, unless you fall for this scam. So this is from iMore.com. People stealing iPhones is absolutely nothing new, unfortunately. But people using Find My to disable their devices is usually a good port of call because it prevents them from being accessed or set up anew. A new trick shared by one unfortunate iPhone owner shows that thieves are finding new ways to get around things like Find My, and it's all too easy. An India Today report tells the story of Vendant, someone who lost his iPhone 12 before going through all the usual steps, including trying to use Find My to locate it. And this is a subquote from that article. It says, However, he was told that the iPhone was offline and the system was unable to get the exact location of the device. He then put his phone into loss mode, alerted the police, and blocked his SIM card. If you change the status of your phone to loss mode, your phone will be locked, and so nobody can access your information even after turning the iPhone on. And that's the end of the subquote. And go back to the regular article. It says, A few days went by and it was assumed that all hope was lost. Then Vendant received an SMS suggesting the iPhone had been found and that tapping a link would display the location. The link looked legit because it contained iCloud and Find My, but it wasn't. And there's a little picture here of, of the text message. It says, Your lost iPhone 12 Blue has been found and temporarily switched on. View location. And it gives a link, and that's https colon slash slash icloud.findmy.com dash map.pm slash ktr. So if you know anything about host names on the internet, you caught the problem there, and it's the whole dash map.pm. I mean, that's some other site completely. It's the stuff to the right. It's, it's the last part of it there. It's the whatever dot whatever at the end that really matters. All that initial icloud.findmy.com before the dash map.pm is just BS. It's just, it could be whatever you want it to be. All right, back to the article. It says, after tapping the link, Vendit was asked to log in, which they did, giving the new owner of the iPhone their Apple ID and password. And this is another subquote from the other article. It says, only a minute after entering his details, he got an email notification saying that his Apple ID was accessed from a Windows desktop. He then changed his password and removed the Windows desktop from his Apple ID, but it was too late by then. His stolen iPhone was already removed from his Apple ID, and its Find My feature was also switched off. All right, back to the iMore article. It says, the link was from the person that had the iPhone in their possession, and they were able to use the Apple ID credentials to disable Find My on the iPhone. They got Vended's phone number by putting the SIM into a new device and calling themselves, which explains that part of the mystery. So let me just stop there for a second. So... They stole this guy's phone, so they've got his phone. They turned it off so that he had a hard time finding it, left it off for a couple days. Then they turned it back on, pulled out the SIM card, put it in a, some other phone. And that SIM card is your subscriber identity module. It's your 
that's kind of your cell phone account on a card, put it in a different phone, and from that phone called something else to see what the caller ID would be to figure out what the guy's phone number is. Very clever. All right, back to the article. What's less clear is why the number the link came from also appears to be the number Microsoft uses to send its two-factor authentication codes to. Likely, the number was spoofed, another sign that this thief was no amateur. With Find My disabled, the iPhone could be wiped and set up as a new device using anyone's Apple ID, just as if it had been bought legitimately. Normally, this is where I say to make sure that you have two-factor authentication enabled, but that would likely have failed to do its job here too. Vendit would have entered that into the phishing site and handed it to the thief along with the username and password. The real moral of the story? Check and double-check links before accessing them and consider using a password manager that will alert you if you're entering details into a site other than the one you saved them from. All right, so let me let me address that real quick. So again, what they did is they that link that says, you know, click here to see your phone or whatever, and it asked him to log in was a fake website. It looked it was supposed to look like an Apple website, so he's supposed to log in with his Apple credentials, which he does. And then of course now he's really given those credentials to the bad guy. And what they're saying is if two-factor authentication was required, that fake website would have logged into the real account And then when they got prompted for the two-factor authentication, they would have changed the fake website to say, okay, now enter your two-factor authentication code, and they would have given that one too. So as far as checking links, that's really hard to do. It's really easy to be fooled. So you just have to be super, super careful when you get stuff like this. Whenever I would get something like this, I would just not click the link at all, and I would go directly to whatever website it's trying to tell me to go to. Like in this case, I would have logged into iCloud.com and looked for some sort of a message there or some sort of a notification. Apple's really good about sending out push notifications as well. Probably not going to send you via text message anyway. But you just got to be careful. These guys are smart. I mean, so the systems themselves, the actual security systems themselves, are working perfectly as designed here. What they're doing is finding social engineering techniques to work around them. Humans are always the weakest link. All right, another Apple story here. There's been a lot of talk in the news lately about the NSO group. This is an Israeli company that makes a software package called Pegasus, and that Pegasus software package is basically an iPhone hack spyware tool. Well, not even basically. That, that is exactly what it is. And these guys claim that they only sell this to you know government law enforcement agencies, and they have to be from an approved list, and they don't sell it to authoritarian governments. But it's been shown time and time again that that's BS. They're selling it to a lot more people than that. Anyway, and so Apple and the U.S. government actually have basically had enough, (laughs) and so they're fighting back. And so Apple has decided to sue this company. By the way, Facebook sued these guys a couple years ago over a very similar thing with their WhatsApp Messenger. So let me read this article from The Verge, and we'll talk about it. Now Apple has followed WhatsApp and its parent company Meta, formerly known as Facebook, in suing Pegasus spyware maker NSO Group along with promising new information about how NSO Group infected targeted iPhones via a zero-click exploit that researchers later dubbed forced entry, Apple says it's, quote, seeking a permanent injunction to ban NSO Group from using any Apple software, services, or devices, unquote. Apple and WhatsApp aren't alone in their push against NSO Group in court, as last year, tech companies including Microsoft and Google filed a brief supporting Facebook's lawsuit. Pegasus spyware is designed to let governments remotely access a phone's microphones, cameras, and other data on both iPhones and Androids, according to Apple's press release. It's also designed to be able to infect phones without requiring any action from the user and without leaving a trace, according to reports that came out earlier this year from a journalistic coalition called the Pegasus Project and Apple's complaint. Apple also cites reports that the spyware has been used against journalists, activists, and politicians, despite NSO's claims that its governmental clients are forbidden from using the spyware against those sorts of targets. Apple's Senior Director of Commercial Litigation, Heather Grenier, says in a statement to the New York Times that the lawsuit is meant to be a, quote, stake in the ground to send a clear signal, unquote, that the company won't allow its users to suffer, quote, this type of abuse, unquote. Part of Apple's argument laid out in the complaint is that the NSO violated Apple's terms of service because the group created, quote, more than 100, unquote, Apple IDs to help it send data to targets. In Apple's complaint, it breaks down how the attack worked. Using the Apple IDs it created, NSO would send data to a target via iMessage after determining that they were using an iPhone, which was maliciously crafted to turn off the iPhone's logging. That would let the NSO group install the Pegasus spyware and control what was being collected on the phone. 
Apple says that the specific vulnerability that NSO was using was patched in iOS 14.8, which you can read more about here. Of course, that's a link which you can't click. The summary is that the NSO was sending files that exploited a bug in how iMessage rendered GIFs and PDFs. Apple says in its press release that thanks to improvements it's made in iOS 15 security, it, quote, has not observed any evidence of successful remote attacks against devices running iOS 15 and later versions, end quote. In addition to its lawsuit against NSO, Apple says it'll be supporting, quote, organizations pursuing cyber surveillance research and advocacy, unquote, both financially and with technical resources. The company says it'll distribute $10 million plus any damages it wins from its lawsuit to groups working on counter-surveillance and pledges in its press release to give free, quote, technical threat intelligence and engineering assistance, unquote, to Citizen Lab, a group of researchers that were involved with the Pegasus project and that helped Apple discover and patch NSO's exploits. Apple also says it'll do the same for other organizations, quote-unquote, where appropriate. NSO was recently added to the U.S. Entity List, which limits the ways American companies can sell or provide their technology to the company. According to a report by the MIT Technology Review, the sanction has been seriously detrimental both to employee morale at the NSO group and the company's ability to do business. The report says the company has to request permission from the U.S. government to purchase items like laptops running Windows and iPhones, and that the government has said its default decision would be, would be to turn down those requests. All right, the article goes on, um, but that's the those are the key parts. So I've actually reached out to the EFF because I'd love to get into some of the interesting legal aspects around the creation of spyware as a business. And, you know, how likely is a suit like this to actually succeed in court. I mean, it's an international lawsuit, so that makes it weird already. And, you know, at the end of the day, all I, I was really saying that they've the only law that they've violated, well, it's not even a law, is they've broken the terms of service agreement. You know, that thing that you all say you read and clicked accept but never do. I'm sure somewhere buried in there, in the terms of services that you're not supposed to do bad things with the, with the device. And so basically what Apple's saying is they're kind of saying these these guys have broken our terms of ser service flagrantly and therefore should not be allowed anymore to use our devices or services for anything. Now, what this really could be, I mean, Apple, first of all, has got deep, deep, deep pockets. I mean, the amount of money that Apple could throw at any kind of lawsuit like this is just staggering. But even if they don't win, if they manage to pursue this in court, the discovery process, which is Apple demanding, you know, private internal documents and sales data and memos and emails and things like that from the from the NSO group. I mean, just that discovery process alone would probably be very, very damning. So, you know, at the end of the day, this could just be a fishing expedition by Apple, but it might be a successful one, whether or not the lawsuit actually successfully concludes or not. I mean, of course, lawsuits like this take years and years too. So, Anyway, it's an interesting little little twist in that in that whole scene, and a, honestly, a welcome one. I mean, these guys—I can't believe it's legal for for this kind of stuff to happen. So I wish, I certainly wish Apple all the best in this lawsuit, and Facebook for that matter, I guess. And really glad to see that the United States is actually kind of backing this up too, with some, you know, kind of regulations of their own, putting these guys in a vice. All right, so a quick related article, and this is from Apple Insider, uh, related to this. It says. As part of Apple's initiative to battle state-sponsored spyware, or more specifically, the surveillance and monitoring of Apple device owners, the company is introducing a system that will alert users when they are believed to be targets of such attacks. On Tuesday, Apple announced that it filed suit against NSO Group and its parent company over the creation and deployment of the Pegasus spyware. Apple said it is notifying, quote-unquote, a small number of users who were targeted by forced entry and promised to continue to alert customers if and when future attacks are detected. And this is a, uh, a quote from uh, some Apple representative. It says, quote, anytime Apple discovers activity consistent with a state-sponsored spyware attack, Apple will notify the affected users in accordance with industry best practices, unquote. The system is already active, as Reuters report on Wednesday de detailed alert messages that were sent to at least six Thai activists and researchers. Apple explains threat notifications in a support document. While the inherent nature of state-sponsored attacks, expensive, complex, and highly targeted, precludes most users from being exposed, Apple says that if one of its customers is affected, they can expect to be informed in two ways. A prominent alert notification displayed at the top of the Apple ID website and alerts sent via email and iMessage to the address and phone number associated with an Apple ID. 
Notifications from Apple will never ask users to click links, open files, install apps or profiles, or provide their Apple ID password or verification code by email or on the phone, the company says. Those who receive a threat notification can verify its authenticity by visiting the Apple ID portal, or website, where an identical alert will appear should the message be genuine. The tech giant acknowledges that false alarms are possible and that the system might not detect all attacks. As a precaution, users are urged to follow these best practices. And it rattles off a bunch of things you've heard from me before, but I'll say them again just to be complete. One, update devices to the latest software, as that includes the latest security fixes. Two, protect devices with a passcode. Three, use two-factor authentication and a strong password for Apple ID. Four, install apps from the App Store. Five, use strong and unique passwords online. And six, don't click on links or attachments from unknown senders. And in this case, that's really the big one, though some of the bugs that this NSO group has found required zero input from the user. I mean, like they didn't have to do anything. They're called zero-click exploits, meaning that they don't even have to click on a link or do anything to, to be hacked. It's just the act of receiving the message, uh, some of these bugs were bad enough that all they had to do was receive the message and the phone was basically already hacked. But hopefully uh, Apple's got those fixed. I mean, it's a real cat and mouse game. These are tough. But hopefully Apple has uh, has managed to fix those bugs on iOS 15. All right, next up, this is from uh, The Record, which I don't know if I've ever quoted these guys before. But it's a really interesting study that Microsoft has done about bad guys trying to hack into uh, servers. So anyway, let me just read this real quick from The Record. It says, according to data collected by Microsoft's network of honeypot servers, and I'll explain that in a second, most brute force attackers primarily attempt to guess short passwords with very few attacks targeting credentials that are either long or contain complex characters. And this is a quote from Ross Bevington, who's a security researcher at Microsoft. He says, quote, I analyzed the credentials entered from over 25 million brute force attacks against SSH, which is for secure shell. This is, a, this is sort of the way that you log into a remote server when you're a, an, an admin. This is around 30 days of data in Microsoft's sensor network. 77% of attempts used a password between 1 and 7 characters. A password over 10 characters was only seen in 6% of cases. And it, actually, I should have mentioned his, uh, his title is Head of Deception at Microsoft, a position in which he's tasked with creating legitimate-looking honeypot systems in order to study attacker trends. And so, okay, so I, said, I said I would explain Honeypot. So Honeypot is probably what it sounds like because it's metaphorically a great name. It's somebody who sets up a fake server out on the internet, out in the cloud, designed to be hacked. Like it's kind of sitting there trying to be hacked. And so when it does get hacked, you know, he kind of pays attention to, you know, how the bad guys are trying to attack it. And they're just getting a lot of data from doing this. And the, the article, actually, if you dig into the article, actually talks about, you know, the passwords that were most often guessed, which were just horrible passwords. I mean, honestly, most of those aren't brute force. They've got a list of like the 10,000 worst passwords, the ones that, you know, that come out every year. And the, the number one is always one, two, three, four, five, six, which has six characters. And another one that people for some reason tend to think is so cool they use all the time is QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, which the first six keys on a standard English keyboard. All right, let me, let me finish this article and I'll talk a little bit more. Bevington says that only 7% of the Bruce Force attacks he analyzed in the sample data included a special character. In addition, 39% had at least one number and none of the brute force attempts used passwords that included white space. And white space would be, in this case, probably either a tab or a space, which some people don't even think uh, you could put in a password, but a lot of times that's legal. The researchers' findings suggest that longer passwords that include special characters are most likely safe from the vast majority of brute force attacks as long as they haven't been leaked online and are not part of the attacker's brute forcing dictionaries. And I've got a little bit of an issue with that term, but I'll come back to that in a second. In addition, Bevington said that based on data from more than 14 billion brute force attacks attempted against Microsoft's network of honeypot servers, also known as a sensor network, until September this year, attacks on remote desktop protocol servers have tripled compared to 2020, seeing a rise of 325%. Network printing services also saw an increase of 178%. Okay, so I guess I should have maybe defined this a little sooner too, but brute force attacks, a true brute force attack means I'm just guessing possibilities. Like, is the password A? No. Is the password B? No. Is the password C? No. And then all through the alphabet, okay, is the password AA? No. Is the password AB? No. Anyway, so that would be 
that'd be a brute force attack where I'm literally guessing every possible value. Now, most people aren't going to have one character passwords, and you can tell by this little chart that you can't see that the bad guys know that too. And so they, they, they you know, focus most of their guessing in the, you know, like the four to nine character range. But then they talk about, you know, whether or not, you know, your password has been leaked. Okay, fine. If it's leaked, it should be hashed, which means they'd still have to guess it somehow. But it's also not part of, and they called it a brute forcing dictionary. I don't think that's the proper term. I'm not a security expert, but the dictionaries they're talking about here, these also called rainbow tables, are basically pre-calculated hashes of really bad passwords. Like the top 10,000 passwords, maybe it's even bigger than that now, that a lot of people use uh, stupidly. They pre-calculate the hashed value of all of those so that you can just kind of look it up real quick and don't have to try to reverse engineer the hash. If you see that hash, you know it has to be this bad password. So I'm not sure I'd call that a brute forcing dictionary because that doesn't seem to be a contradiction in terms. All right. Anyway, that's a cybersecurity nuance that you probably don't care about. Okay. Next up, GoDaddy had a big password breach. Uh, and fortunately, the way that we all found out about it was pretty lame. So this is from Naked Security, the uh, the Sophos blog. It says, The U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, has just published a security incident submitted last week by web services behemoth GoDaddy. GoDaddy says that on 17 November 2021, it realized that there were cyber criminals in its network, kicked them out, and then set about trying to figure out when the crooks got in and what they'd managed to do while they were inside. According to GoDaddy, the crooks, or the unauthorized third party as the report refers to them, did the following four things. One, had been active since September 6th, uh, which is about a 10-week window. Two, acquired email addresses and customer numbers of 1.2 million managed WordPress customers. Three, got access to all active managed WordPress customer usernames and passwords for SFTP, or Secure FTP, and the WordPress databases. And four got access to SSL TLS private keys belonging to some MWP users. The report just says a subset of active users rather than stating how many. GoDaddy has now reset all affected passwords and says it's in the process of replacing all potentially stolen web certificates with freshly generated ones. GoDaddy is also in the process of contacting as many as 1.2 million affected users as it can. With 10 weeks in hand before getting spotted, the criminals in the stack could have used the compromised SFTP passwords and web certificates to pull off further cybercrimes against these MWP users. And that's managed WordPress, MWP. In particular, crooks who know your SFTP password could, in theory, not only download the files that make up your site, thus stealing your core content, but also upload unauthorized additions to the site. Those unauthorized websites' additions could include, one, backdoored WordPress plugins to let the crooks sneak back in again even after your passwords are changed, two, fake news that would embarrass your business if customers were to come across it, three, malware directly targeting your site, such as crypto mining or stealing code designed to run right on the server, or four, malware targeting visitors to your site, such as zombie malware to be served up as part of a phishing scam. So what to do? And it rattles off some five tips here. Uh, first, watch out for contact from GoDaddy about the incident. You might as well check that your contact details are correct so that if the company needs to send you an email, you'll definitely receive it. Two, turn on two-factor authentication if you haven't already. Three, review all the files on your site, especially those in WordPress plugin and theme directories. By uploading booby-trapped plugins, the attackers may be able to get back into your account later, even after all the original holes have been patched and stolen passwords changed. Four, review all accounts on your site. Another popular trick with cybercriminals is to create one or more new accounts, often using usernames that are carefully chosen to fit in with the existing names on your site as a way of sneaking back in later. And five, beware of anyone contacting you out of the blue and offering to quote-unquote help you to clean up. The attackers in this case made off with email addresses for all affected users, so those offers could be coming directly from them, or indeed any other ambulance-chasing cyber crook out there who knows or guesses that you're an MWP user. All right, so I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you are probably not MWP users, but that's still some good advice just in general if you've got any sort of an online website that you maintain. And the real kicker for me here is that <laughs> the way we all found out about this is not because GoDaddy came went public and told everybody, but they kind of had to because they're a public company and they put it in their SEC filing. That is not how you want to uh, have your users find out about this. All right, next up, this is from Bleeping Computer. Yet another Windows Zero Day, uh, but this has got a twist to it that um, that I, I just can't quite understand. 
All right, the article says, a security researcher has publicly disclosed an exploit for a new Windows zero-day local privilege escalation vulnerability. And privilege, <laughs> I know it's a lot of mumbo-jumbo there, but that basically means that with this exploit, a bad guy can take, if he gets access to just a regular non-admin account, if he gets access to that, then he can bump up his privileges to full-on admin. That's what the privilege escalation means. Using this vulnerability, threat actors with limited access to a compromised device can easily elevate their privileges to help spread laterally within the network. The vulnerability affects all supported versions of Windows, including Windows 10, Windows 11, and Windows Server 2022. As part of the November 2021 Patch Tuesday, Microsoft fixed a Windows Installer Elevation of Privilege Vulnerability, tracked as CVE 2021-41379. This vulnerability was discovered by security researcher, and I'm going to get this wrong, Abdelhamid Nasiri, who found a bypass to the patch and a more powerful new zero-day privilege elevation vulnerability after examining Microsoft's fix. Yesterday, Nasiri published a working proof-of-concept exploit for the new zero-day on GitHub, explaining that it works on all supported versions of Windows. And here's a quote from Nasiri's write-up. It says, quote, this variant was discovered during the analysis of the CVE 2021-41-379 patch. The bug was not fixed correctly, however. Instead of dropping the bypass, I have chosen to actually drop this variant as it is more powerful than the original one, unquote. Furthermore, Nasiri explained that while it is possible to configure group policies to prevent standard users from performing MSI installer operations, his zero-day bypasses this policy and will work anyway. When Bleeping Computer asked Nasiri why he publicly disclosed the zero-day vulnerability, we were told he did it out of frustration over Microsoft's decreasing payouts in their bug bounty program. And this is from Nasiri. He says, quote, Microsoft bounties have been trashed since April 2020. I really wouldn't do that if Microsoft didn't take the decision to downgrade those bounties, unquote. As is typical with zero days, Microsoft will likely fix the vulnerability in an upcoming Patch Tuesday update. However, Nasiri warned that it is not advised for third-party patching companies to try and fix the vulnerability by attempting to patch the binary, as it will likely break the installer. And another quote from Nasiri, he says, quote, The best workaround available at the time of writing this is to wait for Microsoft to release a security patch due to the complexity of this vulnerability, unquote. Since publishing the story, Cisco Talos researchers have discovered that threat actors have begun to use this vulnerability with malware. And this is a quote from uh, Cisco. It says, quote, During our investigation, we looked at recent malware samples and were able to identify several that were already attempting to leverage the exploit. Since the volume is low, this is likely people working with the proof-of-concept code or testing for future campaigns. This is just more evidence on how quickly adversaries work to weaponize a publicly available exploit, unquote. And yeah, that's the that's the problem here. I mean, look, I get it. This guy's frustrated that Microsoft kind of retroactively downgraded a lot of these bug bounties and made them. I didn't quote it here, but I think one of the examples given was they used to give out ten thousand dollars for something, and now they were only giving out a thousand bucks for something. Look, I get that's frustrating, but if you're a security researcher, you still have to follow the process. I mean, you still have to responsibly disclose these things. This guy basically just gave it away. He's like, well, you know, screw it. If they're not going to pay me enough money, I'm just going to drop this you know, out in the public. And now the bad guys are already picking it up and trying to use it. That's that's poor form. That's that's not good. I mean, you know, give Microsoft whatever blame you want here and how badly it might be running its bug bounty program, but there's still no excuse for that. If you consider yourself an ethical hacker, and that is not an oxymoron. That is a real thing then you, you just can't be doing this. That's that's bad. All right, some more bad news. Uh, and I've seen this multiple places, but I picked this uh, ZDNet article uh, to describe it. And it says, a new form of Internet of Things malware, which uses over 30 different exploits, has been spotted by security researchers. Detailed by cybersecurity researchers at AT&T Alien Labs, Botina Go malware can use a number of methods to attack targets, then create a backdoor on compromised devices. And a quote from the researchers, they say, quote, deployed with more than 30 exploits, it has the potential of targeting millions of routers and IoT devices, end quote. Botina Go, and that's spelled B-O-T-E-N-A-G-O, and the Go part there, by the way, is for the language that it's written in. It's called Golang. And the article talked about that, but I'm not going to get into that. Botina Go scans the internet looking for vulnerable targets. An analysis of, of the code reveals that the attacker is presented with a live global infection counter that tells them how many devices are compromised at any given time. 
the attackers are able to exploit the vulnerabilities in internet-facing devices and can execute remote shell commands, and it's something that attackers could potentially use as a gateway to the wider network if not secured properly. Attackers also have the ability to use this option to distribute malicious payloads, but at the time the researchers were analyzing Botinigo, they had apparently been removed from the servers hosted by the attackers, so it wasn't possible to analyze them. Botinigo could potentially compromise millions of devices that are exposed to the vulnerabilities detailed by researchers, but currently there isn't any obvious communication with a command and control server. Even if it is inactive, the number of vulnerabilities Botinigo can exploit means millions of devices are potentially vulnerable. In order to protect against this and other IoT malware threats, it's recommended that software is well-maintained with security updates being applied as soon as possible in order to minimize the time for attackers to exploit newly disclosed vulnerabilities. It's also recommended that IoT devices aren't exposed to the wider internet and that a properly configured firewall is deployed to protect them. And I know this article didn't talk about it, but if you look at the actual AT&T report, it lists several uh, vulnerable devices, uh, generally speaking, routers, modems, and some NAS devices or network-attached storage devices, uh, including ones from D-Link, Netgear, Zyxel, Z-Y-X-E-L, routers, and NAS devices, ZTE modems, and more. So what does this mean for you? Um, the main takeaway here, really, uh, and what you need to do is if you have a router or a modem that you own, not one given to you by your, um, you know, your internet service provider, but if you actually bought your own modem, so you're charged with maintaining it. Unfortunately, a lot of the older ones don't have built-in automatic software updates. Uh, so you, as the owner of these devices, need to be looking out for software updates and getting them installed as soon as possible. Uh, I would personally set some sort of a reminder for yourself to do this. You know, heck, I mean, if your devices don't automatically update on their own, you might want to do it weekly. Just see if there's an update doesn't take long. And if there is one, get it installed right away. What's not clear to me from, from this article or even a couple others I read is if these vulnerabilities really were exploitable from uh, the internet side. Like these were vulnerabilities that would allow somebody to attack your modem or your router from the broader internet as opposed to, say, from, from uh, some compromised device within your home network. But I'm kind of getting the feeling that these were remote vulnerabilities like Yes, this means that if your device is out there on the internet, which modems and, router and home routers are meant to do, like this article says, you know, keep these things off the internet. Well, these things have to be on the internet. That's their whole purpose. Now, for some of these other IoT devices, like some of these NAS drives and, and things like that, those are within your home network. So hopefully, you know, with your firewall, it should be preventing external access to those devices, unless you explicitly allowed them, or unless you have the UPnP feature turned on, which lets devices kind of negotiate these things without asking. And that's why I usually tell people to turn off UPnP and just manage it yourself. It's a pain in the butt, but it's a lot better than finding out you've got holes in your, you know, holes in your network that you didn't know were there. But you know, anyway, the main takeaway here there is, is these devices all run software and these soft, you know, these devices do have bugs. And so you should be keeping them up to date. Okay, just a couple more articles here. This one is from Extreme Tech. It's about Microsoft turning on Edge Sync by default and gathering a lot of data. And then also tangentially mentions something else they've been doing lately, which is also not cool. Uh, so it's all kind of referenced here. So let me read the article and then I'll talk about it. When I launched Edge this morning, I was surprised to see a message informing me that Sync was now enabled and my data was being uploaded to the cloud to be shared with other PCs where I was also logged in. I don't use synchronization services between browsers because I have no interest in sharing this information with Google, Firefox, Microsoft, or any other company. Google definitely tries to push end users to activate synchronization services when they first sign into the browser, but if you turn the feature off, it stays off thereafter. Microsoft has taken a different tack. To be honest, I would have chalked the problem up to a user error if I hadn't seen this post, and this is a link, of course, which doesn't help you as I'm reading it, from security researcher Bruce Schneier, who we have had on the show before. According to him, quote, I received an email from two people who told me that Microsoft Edge enabling syncing without warning or consent, which means that Microsoft sucked up all of their bookmarks. Of course, they can turn syncing off, but it's too late, unquote. This kind of user-unfriendly behavior is par for the course at Microsoft these days. The company recently admitted that its decision to prevent end users from changing their browsers in Windows 11 via Edge Detector, and I'll circle back to that in a minute, is a deliberate crackdown on choice that the company does not intend to roll back. When asked about its decision to prevent end users from changing Edge as a default browser for certain activities in Windows 11, a Microsoft spokesperson said, quote, 
Windows openly enables applications and services on its platform, including various web browsers. At the same time, Microsoft also offers certain end-to-end -end customer experiences in both Windows 10 and Windows 11. The search experience from the taskbar is one such example of an end-to-end -end experience that is not designed to be redirected. When we become aware of improper redirection, we issue a fix, unquote. But there's nothing, quote-unquote, improper about the redirection as contemplated in the example above, and it's interesting that Microsoft feels that it has the right to say otherwise. It is improper, according to Microsoft, for you to configure your own system to use the web browser of your choice. It is proper, according to Microsoft, for the company to turn on a sync feature that uploads your data to its servers automatically without first seeking consent. Last year, Microsoft took heat for the way Edge silently imported data from other browsers at startup. These incidents show the company learned nothing from the user outcry. It's still pushing applications like PC Health Check to end users whether they want it or not. At this point, it seems foolish to expect anything different. Microsoft clearly believes it has the right to compel its end users to use Edge and to share sensitive browsing data with itself by default, whether end users opt in or not. Microsoft used to seem like a company that treated end-user data with more respect than Google or Amazon, but the company's behavior in the six years since the Get Windows 10 campaign has dented that reputation. So yeah, this is this is really slimy, and honestly, I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if there might not be some sort of attempt at a lawsuit out of this, though I'm sure, again, this is something in the terms of service that you agreed to whenever you installed Windows, or bought a computer with Windows pre-installed. But again, let me, so let me just circle back to what, what is actually happening here. So two things that this article references. First of all, Microsoft basically is saying there are certain links that it will force you to open in its own Microsoft Edge browser. And these are just regular links, but because of where you click on these, like for example, in the start menu, if there's some ad there, or if you do a search there and it comes up with something and you click on a link that's a result, what appears to be happening now is that when you click that link, it forces that link to be open, not in your default web browser, whatever that may be, but in Microsoft Edge. And there was a tool, and I told you I'd come back to this, that somebody had written called Edge Detector. And this thing basically, under the covers, what's going on here, if you've ever looked at various links, we've talked about this recently, actually, HTTP and HTTPS are the web links. Those are web schemes. Those are URI schemes. You might have seen other ones like file, like file colon slash slash something. And that is a, a link to a file on your local file system. It's not HTTP. It's not a web page. It's opening a file in your web browser. Well, there's other links that Microsoft has put its own special URI scheme on. I think it's called Microsoft dash edge colon slash slash whatever. And whenever Microsoft sees that, it opens that link using the Edge browser. That's its little cue to itself that, hey, I want this link in particular to be opened using Microsoft's browser, not whatever the user wants. And somebody, some smart guy came up with this tool that basically says, okay, fine, whenever, whenever you see Microsoft-Edge, I want you to just change that to be HTTP. And that will allow it to go to whatever your default web browser is and bypass going through Edge. Well, Microsoft has basically said no and, and is now not allowing that to happen anymore. It's enforcing that some of these URI schemes that are Microsoft-Edge are maintained and must therefore be opened in their Edge browser. And then, again, and what the, the point of this particular article was that, you know, Microsoft, like Google and Firefox and Safari, I guess, have these cloud-based sync things where you set up an account uh, with the browser maker and then all your bookmarks and you could do more. You could do things like your tabs could be synchronized, your passwords could be synchronized, your history could be synchronized, you know, across multiple, multiple devices, which can be a convenient thing. I actually use it myself. But what Microsoft did, they've got this built in for their Microsoft accounts as well. And with the Edge browser is they automatically turn this syncing on without asking your permission first. So basically what that means is whatever data Microsoft Edge will sync to the cloud for your benefit, supposedly, is now also been given to Microsoft to do with whatever they please. That's really bad. That's just slimy. All right, one more article, and then I'll get into my tip of the week, which <laughs> addresses my particular pain uh, that I had recently. Okay, this was from notechie.com. I've never heard of this before, but... I went looking for this article because I heard about it somewhere else and I looked it up and it's, and it's about Vizio TVs and, and I talked about this in my best and worst gift guide too. It's really 
amazing what our devices, our quote-unquote smart devices, are tattling on us about. So anyway, let me read this article, and then I'll talk about it. It's often been said that if you're not paying for it, you're the product. My version of that is, if the product is free, then you're probably the product. And it certainly seems that way with a certain low-cost TV manufacturer. Vizio released its Q3 earnings report last week, and the company made twice the profit off of advertising and viewer data than it made off TV sales. The reason we've not really known about this before now is that Vizio was a privately held company until about a year ago, so it wasn't held to things like public reporting of quarterly earnings. The company has two divisions. Devices, which covers TV soundbars, etc., as you'd expect. The other division, Platform Plus, is less tangible, selling viewer data through its InScape program, ad placements on its device's home screens, and inside quote-unquote free channels, and other things like its cut from subscriptions and deals from the buttons on the remotes. You didn't think that Netflix logo just appeared there on its own, right? That division is extremely lucrative for the company, bringing in $57.3 million of gross profit in Q3. In contrast, the devices division grossed $25.6 million, even with substantially higher revenue. That ended up with the devices division losing $18.6 million this quarter. So you can see how important the data brokering division is to Vizio's overall business strategy and the longevity of the brand. So if you don't want your data being sold by Vizio, here's how to opt out. Press the menu button on your remote, select system, select reset and admin, highlight viewing data, and hit the right arrow to change the setting to off. In case you were thinking just low-cost TV manufacturers were doing this, they're not. So are premium brands like Samsung or LG with targeted advertising based on the reams of data available on your watching habits and other online activities. That goes for streaming box manufacturers like Roku as well, which makes an average of $40 per user per month. Still think you're not the product? All right, so this is a great follow-on to what I talked about in my Best and Worst Gift Guide. These IoT devices are, you know, tend to be low-margin devices. Even these TVs that are big-ticket items are actually you know, the margins on these are actually pretty low. It's a very cutthroat, you know, world of selling these devices. And so the way that a lot of these companies are making up money is by spying on you and selling that data. And so what I do with all my TVs, because it's almost impossible not to buy a smart TV today, is what I do with all my TVs is I just keep them dumb. I never connect them to the internet ever. Now, that means that I can't use any of the TV's built-in apps for accessing things like Netflix or whatever, which is totally fine because I've got a separate streaming box that I use for that. I've got an Apple TV that has all those great apps on it, and it works a whole lot better and is way more private. But it's actually worse than that. I mean, so these TV's actually have technology built into them to figure out what it is you're watching. If you've ever used Shazam, which was the app that Apple actually bought, uh, that lets you kind of, while a song is playing in the background somewhere, like, who is that? Who's singing that song? I know that song. Well, who is that? And you launch, So you launch Shazam, and this really smart app listens to whatever song is playing, and from a snippet is able to basically figure out exactly what that song is. Well, TVs are doing the same thing, but they're looking at what you're watching. So even if you're, I mean, if your TV is obviously, you've got a, if it's got a built-in tuner and you're using an over-the-air rabbit ears kind of setup, you know, it knows what channel you're on at any given time. But if you're just piping something into that television, say from a DVD player or a Blu-ray player or a streaming box or something else to buy an HDMI input, the, the data coming in off that HDMI cable doesn't include like the name of the show you're watching or anything like that. So... These smart TVs have basically come up with a Shazam-like feature except for video, and they can actually, based on looking at what is being shown on the screen, can figure out what it is you're watching. And they record this and sell it. Now, if you, again, if you, if you lobotomize your television, if you never connect it to the internet, you know, don't plug in the Ethernet cable, don't set up the Wi-Fi, then it can't, it can't talk to anybody. It's, it's, it's kept dumb, which I highly recommend that you all do. Because even though, you know, Vizio apparently has some way to turn this off, I wouldn't trust it. Okay, so uh, now let's get to my tip of the week. And this is, <laughs> I've said many, many times that debit cards are worse than credit cards. When you're shopping, certainly when you're shopping online, honestly, as far as I'm concerned, when you're shopping really anywhere, uh, credit cards are just better. Because a credit card purchase is a loan. When you, quote unquote, buy something with your credit card, you're actually not paying any money. You're not paying that bill until you get your monthly bill and you pay it off with all the rest of the things you purchased that month. But until that point, you're not out any money. So if somebody manages to fraudulently charge your card uh, for something that you didn't buy, 
or there was, you know, it could be a mistake. There could be lots of reasons that something gets charged to your card and it's not correct. You have time, at least until you pay your bill, to dispute that charge. And, you know, more than likely, if you can show that it was wrong, uh, you'll never be charged. You'll never, you'll never have any financial impact whatsoever based on that faulty charge. Debit cards are a direct line to the backing bank account. Whatever, you know, checking your whatever account that's behind that debit card is immediately hit for whatever you purchase. That money is gone. So when you purchase something with a debit card online or in person or whatever, that money is immediately taken from your account. And if there's a fraud there, if there's a problem there, you actually have to go to your bank and say, hey, that wasn't me or, hey, this was a scam and I need that money back. And then (laughs) then they've got to give you that money back. And they may or may not do that, or they may take a long time to do that. I mean, it's bad. I mean, but in the meantime, your money's gone. So for that reason, you know, I don't use my debit cards. Now, you probably run across this when you set up a new bank account. They want to give you an ATM card. And today, almost always, that ATM card is also a debit card because they want you to use that debit card. They get, you know, some transaction fees every time you use it. That's a money-making thing for them. They want you to have a debit card. But that doesn't mean you have to use it, and I generally don't. But I still got burned. My bank account was drained to zero recently by a debit card hack. Now, was my wallet stolen? No. Did I use that card somewhere and there was some, you know, fancy little credit card skimmer that was able to get my card details and clone my card? No. Was my debit card, you know, on file somewhere with some company that was hacked and the bad guys, you know, got my you know, debit card number from their database? No. According to my credit union, what happened is the bad guys guessed my number. (laughs) Somehow correctly guessed my 16-digit debit card number and then started charging stuff to it. Now, 16-digit credit card numbers, if, if, if you do the math, 10 raised to the 16th power, which is, I think, something like 10 quadrillion, is a lot of possible credit card numbers. How they possibly guess my number? Okay, well, it's actually it's actually quite a bit easier than that, though it's still not easy. If you have noticed, most credit cards start with the number three, four, five, or six, and those numbers correspond generally to the big financial credit card backing companies that make those cards. Uh, three is for American Express, four is for Visa, five is for Mastercard, and six is for Discover. And I think Diners Club was in there somewhere at some point. But if you've ever noticed, if you've got a Visa, it starts with a four. If you've got a MasterCard, it starts with a five. But it's actually even more than that. The first six of those 16 digits represent the bank. So, you know, if it's a Visa-backed bank, then it'll start with a four, but the next five digits also specifically, maybe it'll be Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Chase or whatever. So the first six digits denote the bank. So all of those possible six digits are are not currently in use. So that cuts things down quite a bit. And so let's assume these bad guys figured out that, you know, the six digit number that corresponded to my credit union. So now there's 10 digits left. Now it also turns out, and this is kind of interesting if you want to look it up and there's a, there's, if you go to my blog article on this, you can find a link that can kind of help you break down what's all in a credit number, credit card number. There are things built into the credit card number that make it valid. They'll help you decide whether or not a credit card number is valid. And it's got a checksum. And we talked about checksums before uh, on this, on this show recently, actually. And so that last digit of the 16 digits is a checksum. And it's not quite straightforward as a regular checksum, but there's a formula that basically you add up all the digits in a certain way, the first 15 digits in a certain algorithm, and then the result is that last number. So you can tell if it's a valid credit card number by running through the algorithm on the first 15 digits and seeing if the result, uh, the 16th digit is correct. So that 16th digit is also not really part of the variable number of things there. So now we're actually, if you do all that math, you're down to... Nine digits that could be, I guess, potentially anything. And that's still, you know, a billion permutations. So there may have been something further that the bad guys did here to further reduce their number of numbers they had to guess to come up with a valid card number. But that, but that's apparently what I was told is what happened. And that didn't just affect me. It affected a lot of other people, uh, their debit card numbers. And according to them, it actually affected other banks, though I haven't seen any other banks uh, uh, complain about this or any other news articles about this anywhere else. So anyway, so they guessed my number. But then they got really clever. So it's it's not just enough to guess the number. So they also had also worked around some other things that normally might have prevented or caught this. 
So first of all, they used payment systems that did not require the three-digit code on the back. And there may be some weird things. They found some Google service of what it looked like. You know, all the charges came through some sort of a weird Google payment system. And apparently they did not require the three-digit code because I'm pretty sure they did not guess that. So I've recommended, and I still recommend, that you set up alerts on your accounts. And some of the alerts you can set up are for certain amounts, like anything charged over a certain amount. And I know that on this particular card, I don't really charge anything. So I set my limit really low. I set it to 200 bucks. So any purchase over 200 bucks, it would immediately have been flagged. Well, they charged $2.99. So you're thinking three bucks. <laughs> why, is that, why is that a big deal? How did, I, how did I even catch that? Well, the problem is they charged me $2.99 a hundred times within minutes. Now, the last thing they did that was also very smart, and I'm sure very much on purpose, is, they did, is that they did this at 4 a.m. on Veterans Day, which, of course, is a bank holiday here in the United States. And that also meant that basically at 4 a.m. On, on a bank holiday, both myself and my bank were effectively offline in the sense that they were closed for the day and I was sleeping. So it, to my bank's credit, I did get a cryptic text message from them, which, by the way, looks like the other ones I read to you earlier in these articles. I mean, they were really crappily done. They, it looks like I actually thought it was a scam. And it was supposedly from my credit union said, hey, did you really just charge $2.99 for this Google something or other? I'm like... No, I didn't. And it wanted me to reply. It wanted me to, you know, text just, you know, yes or no or whatever. But I did not reply to that because I know that a lot of those are scams. And so instead I went and logged into, and this is when I got up, which is several hours after I got that text message. I went and logged into my credit union account and looked to see if there's something going on. And sure enough, there wasn't just one charge for $2.99. There were a hundred charges for $2.99. And so I knew that I had been had. And now, I was really lucky here. I I don't use this account, this particular account, I, I don't use for much of anything. In fact, it didn't even have $300 in it. So it had drained it past zero. And luckily, the, you know, the fraud department, you know, it's a, some third-party company that my credit union works with, uh, was open on Veterans Day. I mean, they should be. And so I called them up and reported this. And they said, yeah, we're having some problems. You're not the only one. We will mark this card as lost or stolen and and stop all future charges. Now, the other charges were done. Again, this is a debit card. Now, they were listed as pending on my website, so I thought, you know, maybe we could cut these off before they became real. Turns out, no. So I had to wait until the bank opened, which was the next day, before I could even dispute those charges. Now, it turns out in this case, because there were so many of these, uh, that my credit union actually just kind of bulk gave back all of the money. So I got all that money back within 24 hours, which was not normal. I mean, normally I think they said it would have taken five to 10 business days. So again, in this case, I was really lucky. <laughs> I dodged a bullet. This was not an account I used very much. I did not need that money right away. And they didn't manage to get too much money because I don't keep very much money in that account. All right. So tip of the week, what should I have done? What, how could I have done something differently here? What, what should you do to prevent this from happening? Really, there's not a whole lot I could have done there. I mean, they, <laughs> I did, as far as I'm concerned, I did everything right, other than the fact that I had a debit card. So the only other thing I can really recommend at this point is just not have debit cards. Now, I realize that uh, some people can't get credit cards, um, but there are alternatives there. You can get secured credit cards, which are kind of like debit cards. You know, they've actually, you've got to set aside money or, you know, to draw against. But they are credit cards and they're not debit cards. You might try something like that. But if you can use credit cards over debit cards, I would I would do it. And you and I would actually, you know, disable your debit cards. Some banks actually allow you to put a pause on those cards so they're not useful and you don't have to actually cut them up and destroy them. And at some point in the future, you could re-enable them if you wanted to. It's kind of like freezing your credit, except that you've got direct control over it. Uh, my bank did that through, um, through the bank uh, mobile app. I couldn't do it online, but I could do it in the mobile app. But you can also, and a lot of people don't realize this, you can actually, if, if, for instance, if you want that ATM card, you don't have to have an ATM card that's also a debit card. You have to ask for this usually because by default they want to get you that debit card. But you can get uh, a card that is only usable at an ATM. Now, you should still do all the other things I told you about doing. You should set up alarms and alerts on your accounts for weird transactions, you know, over a certain amount or over a certain amount per day. You can lower the limit on your debit card if you know you only use it for certain amounts. You know, you could lower the limit uh, to something more reasonable. Often you have to call them to do this. You can't do it online. Again, they want you to have, they want you using that card. 
But another thing you might want to seriously consider doing is disabling your overdraft protection. And, you know, if you're of a certain age, including myself, when you grew up, that was something you did. You set up overdraft protection because, gosh darn it, you didn't want to pay those insufficient fund fees when somehow, some way, you wrote a check that, you know, for more than what your accountant had in it. You know, the bank fees kept getting worse and worse, and you didn't want to, you know, write a $30 check when you have $20 in your account and then end up having to pay another $25 fee on top of that for, you know, writing a check that bounced. And so you would set up overdraft protection, which supposedly was there to prevent you from having to pay that horrible fee that the bank made up in the first place. <laughs> Instead of just denying the check or whatever, they, they want to make you pay as well. Well, what that means today, however, is that if somebody manages to get access to one of your accounts, like they get your debit card, and they drain that, well, if you've got overdraft protection on, that means they can start pulling from the other account too. So I would just disable overdraft protection. All right, now there's one more thing I'm going to talk about that I'm not going to get into much here, but you can check out my article on, uh, about this, or if you're a newsletter subscriber, you got it already. And that is this company called privacy.com. And I think I've mentioned this recently on the podcast as well. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to get into too much here, but I'm actually going to look into this. I think I might try setting it up, but there's some weird gotchas that, that I want to be careful of. And I, again, I'm not going to go into that here. Just check out the article if you're interested, but privacy.com supposedly guards some of your information from, you know, vendors where you give out your credit card to, though there's some limitations there, but what it really does, the real power of privacy.com is that you can generate these virtual credit card numbers that you can put all sorts of restrictions on. You know, it's only good for this merchant. Like anybody else who tries to charge this will, will fail. It's only good for a certain amount, maybe up to a limit or actually maybe an exact amount. Like if I've got Netflix going every month and I say, okay, for $9.99 a month, you can charge this, but no more, no less. Uh, such that if they raise their rates without, you know, and I miss it, uh, it'll, <laughs> it'll fail. You can also set it up as a one-time card. Like it, this is good once. So anyway, lots of great stuff. I wish more credit cards would, would offer this, these same features, but, but the main downside to privacy.com is it's linked directly to your bank account. So, and now we're kind of back to it working like a debit card, but uh, in this case, it doesn't actually have to be tied to a debit card. You could use the old ACH transfer thing, which has its own kind of validation process, which is a little more secure than maybe the debit card process. All right. Anyway, that is your tip of the week and check out the blog article on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com for more info. All right, that's going to wrap it up today. Thanks for listening. A couple quick notes before we go. Again, that book sale, that super cheap book sale for my book is on is going on till tomorrow. Uh, I assume midnight on Eastern, maybe. So if you want to get uh, some extra copies of my book, now's a great time to do that. Look in the show notes for a link to uh, to the Springer.com website where you can buy it for either ten bucks for the hardback or seven bucks for the ebook. Also, I managed to get a nice review for the book, another five star review. It's very short. I'll just read it here uh, really quick. It's from Sophia M. She says. Uh, the cybersecurity authority for the non-geek and geek alike. Well-written, clear, with excellent task lists at the end of each chapter. A must-have. Also, follow the podcast. Good stuff. So thank you very much, Sophia M., for that really nice review. Now, next week normally would be an interview show. Uh, with the holidays coming up, things are getting kind of weird trying to schedule <laughs> trying to schedule the guests. I've actually got a whole lot of people coming up uh, for interviews. Uh, but timing-wise, it may not work out to come out next week. So I might have another new show next week, and then I might do two interviews in a row. But we shall see. All right, everybody. Welcome to December. Get those shots. Get those boosters. Help other people to get theirs as well. Stay safe out there. And until next week, don't get caught with your garbage down.